Asa, Joash, Isaiah, Jehu, and definitely Saul. Their lives all followed this same tragic pattern. All kings anointed over God's people, all began well and all fell away badly towards the end of their days. They knew the truth, they defended it with great zeal, but when it came to it in later years, when temptation came or when the support network was no longer there, they turned to the things and the ways of the world. And to this tragic list we can add Solomon. Nobody was richer, nobody was wiser. No other king enjoyed such peace. No other king had such respect of Gentile nations round about. And yet from these great heights, Solomon fell and how he fell. Hard to imagine anybody, perhaps with the exception of Ahab in the north or Ahaz in the south, being quite as bad as Solomon towards the end of his days. What we have before us then is a, is a desperately sad portion of God's word. Brethren and sisters, we, we may ask why. So what we have before us, I, I say once again, is a desperately sad portion of God's word. It could be argued, why are we even looking at this? What do we want to depress ourselves? Or do we want to pat ourselves on the back and have a lovely warm glow that we've not fallen as Solomon did? Well, surely not. Good can come from our study. If we heed the warnings that are contained here, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, even the perhaps unsavoury ones. We can learn, we can apply the lesson, we must do so. Though we have never been tempted with this kind of wealth, the challenges are there for, for you and me. I say once again, I've, I've never been offered the opportunity of enormous wealth. I'm very grateful that I wasn't. Years ago, we used to, in business, we would be given these, these rip-off calendars. They, they still exist, perhaps not as, as common as once they were, but every day there would be a, a little other witticism or, or words of, of, of wisdom. And one of them said this, anyone can bear hardship with stoicism. If you really will see the character of a man, give him affluence. And that's true. And that is true. We must not condemn. We've never been there. Perhaps the second key lesson, we can't obtain what Solomon could, but we can and do have access to things that he never did. If I was in the room there at sale, I would ask for a show of hands, how many of you have access to the internet? Well, the fact that you are logged on indicates that you do. Almost anything is just a click away. Do we view things that we shouldn't view? Listen to music we shouldn't listen to, read books, watch films, play games. They might be innocent, but how much time are they wasting? Maybe former generations, if they, if they knew the kinds of lives that we live, might be tempted to ask, as we might ask of Solomon, how could you allow the world to do that to you? Well, let's look at our subject, brethren and sisters, openly, objectively, always looking at our own lives, Remembering, remembering what the Lord Jesus said about be beams and moats. So 1 Kings 11, we're told that King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, 
Sidonians and Hittites, of nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. Now the first key point here I think is the number of different nations. Because together with the daughter of Pharaoh, who was clearly an Egyptian, we have another five Gentile nations, six in all listed here, six being the number of man, the number of the flesh. And this great man was to be turned by people of the flesh, made into something that previously he was not. Notice how the chapter commences there. It's absolutely crucial. This this key word, the word but. Everything up to this point well, has been positive. It'll be 20 degrees. Oh, somebody's not muted, I'm afraid. Everything up until this point had been positive, but Solomon loved many strange women. Completely opposite, isn't it, of that which had gone before. I was going to speak at Sale Fraternal, but I decided to cancel. It's, it's the opposite. Why is this word so, so relevant in the life of King Solomon? It's because of the book of Proverbs. It's a book of repetition, wise and foolish, way and ways. Most especially the word but. 245 uses in 31 chapters, and it goes without saying, much more than any other book in Scripture. Solomon's life could be summed up in this one short word, but he was faithful, but he fell away. He had been obedient to God, but he loved many strange women. And sadly, brothers and sisters, he loved them more. That word strange is, is an interesting one. Many strange women. There in chapter eight, moreover, concerning the stranger, he prayed there at the temple when it was dedicated. Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. Key phrase in that prayer. And do according to all that the stranger calleth to thee for. He, he prayed there that that stranger, the Gentiles, might come because of the place. They came, brethren and sisters. Oh, yes, they came. But instead of being converted to the hope of Israel, they turned his heart away. Indeed, we, we, we could look at examples such as the Queen of Sheba. Hiram, king of Tyre, who came to him and seemingly were touched by his faithfulness, his spirituality. The end of the reign of Solomon, the opposite situation arose. It is so very sad. In this context, we have to look, please, at Proverbs. Come to Proverbs chapter 2. The first part of the book of Proverbs is in the eyes of many that the words of a man for his son, specifically the words of David for his son, Solomon. So, for example, we have 23 uses of, of the word my son, most of these in chapter 1 to 7. Notice especially chapter 2 and verse 10. So Proverbs 2 and verse 10. When wisdom entereth into thine heart, and knowledge is pleasant 
and to thy soul discretion shall preserve thee. That's exactly what happened, isn't it? Early in Solomon's reign. He was granted divine wisdom as requested. Now, what could this wisdom, what, what should this wisdom have done for him? Verse 16 of the same chapter, to deliver thee from the strange woman, even from the stranger which flattereth with her words. It's almost as though David knew that these things could touch Solomon and how despite his wisdom and his faithfulness, he could be drawn away by certain women. Of course, of course, David did. Because when he should have been there on the battlefield, he allowed his eyes to wander, to gaze upon a beautiful woman who was married to one of his most faithful servants. And though David was forgiven and he and Bathsheba were blessed with a number of children, one of whom was Solomon, doesn't take away the sadness or the seriousness of that act. Please be on your guard, says David to his son. Don't marry the wrong kinds of women. They may turn away your heart. And that warning, that prophecy came true with chilling accuracy. When Solomon was old. Indeed, the serious, such was the seriousness of this situation. Hundreds of years later, even after the captivity and indeed the return, this was still being held up as a yardstick for the rest of the nation. So Nehemiah says, you know, Solomon sinned in this way. He married Gentile wives. He was faithful initially. There was no king like him, he says. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women, strange women from out of the land, cause to sin. Apart from Pharaoh's daughter, and we know, of course, that scripture presents Egypt as a type of the world. Where did the other Gentile brides come from? We saw that, didn't we? Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. And if we were to look at them in scripture, we would see that generally speaking, they were pagan. They were extremely sinful. Often they were opposed to the nation of Israel, regularly doing war with them. Brethren and sisters, it wasn't always this way. It didn't have to be this way, did it? Why? Because Ruth was a Moabitess, Solomon's great, great grandma. And, and I say this quite openly, not exaggerating just to make a point, surely one of the greatest women in scripture. Zidonians, well, yes, okay. Jezebel was a Zidonian, her father, Ethbaal, was the king of the Zidonians. But so too was that woman of Zarephath, that faithful widow who gave Elijah her last meal. She was a good Zidonian. What about the Hittites? Why might the Hittites have been of particular note to Solomon? Well, not a woman, but a Hittite man, Uriah. This underlines the, the sadness of this study. You see, Solomon's mother was married to a Hittite, Uriah, and his influence on her was surely only ever good. There's no indication in any way that Uriah was a faithless man. Did you read his words? When he when he speaks to David, when David wants him to go home and spend time with his wife, you know, the ark and my Lord Joab and all Israel are there in tents. I'm not going home. I should be out there on the battlefield 
And by implication, he's saying to David, and so should you, my Lord and my King. And indeed he should. Nonetheless, Solomon's mother was married to a Hittite. The influence was only ever positive. He married Hittites and they drew his heart away. Didn't have to be this way. Solomon could have been, should have been a faithful guide to these women. He should have turned them to Israel's hope. He did so at the start of chapter 10. We won't look at the Queen of Sheba, but there's no indication there that their association was anything but positive. In fact, it seems that he had an immense influence upon her for good. When he married a wife or indeed more than one, he was the man, he was the king. He was the one that should have led that individual in ways that are right. The tragedy here is it worked the other way round. It's the Garden of Eden all over again, isn't it, brethren and sisters? The woman played her part in the man being tempted and he fell. And yet it all began so innocently. The second half of 1 Kings 10 describes how Israel traded with other Gentile nations and became rich. Now, trading with other nations is fine. Having an association with another nation, no problem with that. Naturally speaking, Israel has today, has always had a very close relationship with the United States of America. Nothing wrong with that, naturally speaking. You may have seen pictures or films of North Korea, this nation that's cut itself off from the outside world. We're going to be completely self-sufficient, nothing to do with the other nations. And we know what it's like. It's a place of poverty and desolation. And how wonderful it would be, brethren and sisters, to go to the children of the poor and needy in the age to come there in North Korea and preach to them God's word, to be their saviours, to teach them about Jesus, how glorious it would be for them. I say once again, buying and selling from other nations, no problem. Signing peace accords, that's fine. Look at the end of the chapter. Who did Israel trade with? 1 Kings 10 and verse 29. And the chariots came up and went out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and an horse for 150. And so for all the kings of the Hittites and for all the kings of Syria, did they bring them out by their means? C can you see what we're being shown here? Trading with Egypt, trading with Hittites. That's what it began with. It moved on, didn't it? It evolved to unnecessary association with the world and that's far more dangerous and there are so many examples of this in scripture what about Genesis 34 Tamar and the women of the land she said to her dad and her mom probably I'm just going out to have a look she went out to see the daughters of the land she didn't go out to find a husband that wasn't the original intention it sounds so very innocent it led to some of the most gruesome events in the whole of Scripture. The consequences for her and certainly for the people of Shechem were, were serious indeed. What about Genesis 38? Judah leaves the family unit. I have my own opinion as to why. I don't think he could live with his conscience because of what had happened to Joseph. So he goes out into the world and there he makes a friend, Hiram the Adullamite. 
He marries a woman in the world and he ends up acting like the world. What about Joshua 7 and 8? Achan and the wealth of Jericho. Nothing wrong with going into Jericho. Nothing wrong with taking the wealth of Jericho. Why? Because it should have been brought back to Israel and then taken to the tabernacle and devoted to God. And he completed steps one and two. And he brought that wealth back to his tents, perhaps intending once he'd gone in and washed and changed to take it out and then present it before God. He didn't take the final step. What, what's the lesson for you and me, brothers and sisters? Let's try not to take step one. Because then we cannot take the final step which leads to sin. Yes, there has to be contact with the world. It's impossible to avoid it. But let's try to ensure that a line is never reached and crossed. Let, let me give you a simple example. Let's say a brother sets up in business by himself. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Nothing wrong with trading with people in the world. It would be very hard to have a business and only deal with Christadelphians. So this brother sets up in business and he has two or three particularly profitable customers. And he wants to do everything he can to foster that relationship and cement it. And so he thinks, well, I know what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to book a box at a football match on a Saturday and take, take the buyer with me. And there we are, that's cementing the relationship. So he does that on a Saturday. The following season, he does the same again. But then Sky Television say, we're going to move the game because we want it on Sunday. It's a 12 o'clock kickoff on Sunday. Straight away, this man has a problem. This brother has a problem. What does he do? Does he let the client down? Or does he say, well, OK, I'll, I'll miss the morning meeting. Well, it's only one Sunday. Look, I'm there 51 out of 52. It's only one week a year. I'm sure that's fine. I'll do my own breaking of bread later. There's nothing wrong. Well, is there, brethren and sisters, has he started to cross that line where the world is taking over? Maybe so. Let's say that the MD of one of the customers invites all the big suppliers to spend an evening on his boat. The brother can't say no. Well, I, well, I went with the, with the buyer to the football match. I can't say no to the MD of all people. And he goes and the wine flows like water and someone starts taking drugs. Can you see how a line has been crossed? What began as a simple business association has evolved. And before the brother knew it, he has been dragged into the world in a way that he never once intended. Just a few months before, he would have been horrified to contemplate such a thing. That, brethren and sisters, is what happened with Solomon. He didn't set out to leave the truth. He didn't set out to, to turn his back upon Yahweh and his law and his ways and his prophets. But that's what happened. Because gradually, gradually, he was dragged into an association with the world. Chapter three, 11 and verse 3, 1 Kings 11 verse 3, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Maybe the concubines were Israelites, the princesses were Gentile. They are the ones that dragged his heart away. Apart from the, the sheer illogicality of having a thousand women, how could it be, ever be a good thing, either for the man or the women? 
Now there's five. Solomon didn't have five wives. He had a thousand women, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And that's so far from the scriptural ideal. Yes, I know in Old Testament times it was permitted for a man to have more than one wife. It doesn't get away from the ideal, which is one man and one woman joined together in love for wife. It's clear that some of these were married just as a, as a political alliance. Maybe it was a, a marriage just in name and nothing more. After the initial ceremony, perhaps there was hardly any contact. Let's face it, if you've got a thousand women, you're going to struggle to see them all regularly. You know, I'd certainly struggle to remember any of the names. Maybe this was, this was all it was for Solomon. It was just a political alliance and nothing more. Well, look once again at the end of verse two. What do we read there? 1 Kings 11 verse 2, Solomon clave unto these in love. It wasn't just a political alliance. He loved them. And that word clave, of course, you will know. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, says Almighty God, quoted by the Lord Jesus, and shall cleave, same word in the Hebrew, unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Again, far more than a, a political alliance, far more than just physical attraction. There was love there. The Song of Solomon shows how true and pure and holy and godly love can be a forceful good. Love is as strong as death. And here these women dragged him away into a life of death. Well, brethren and sisters, what about you and me? What, what do we love? What do we truly love? That the true test of love, you know, is sacrifice. Anybody who loves anything or anyone invariably will give up things for him or her or it. We see this in the world outside. Somewhere in the UK, there is a man with the largest collection of model railway equipment. It has dominated his entire life. The whole house is full of it. He scans the land up and down to buy a next train and he's turned his back upon his family because of it. I used to work for an alcoholic and he had sacrificed everything for drink. House, family, appearance, health, everything. Those who knew him during his youth said he was an absolutely brilliant man with an astonishingly quick mind. When I knew him, brethren and sisters, on a good day, he was all right. On a bad day, he couldn't do a simple task correctly. Now, what about you and me? What do we love? What cross are you refusing to pick up? What yoke am I refusing to bear? See, as we move down 1 Kings 11, the, the reality and the tragedy of this situation becomes oh so apparent. In verse four, his heart was turned away when he was old. In verse five, the names of the pagan deities that he followed are there. And we, we won't look at any detail at them, but if we did, what would we see that they were characterized by? Child sacrifice. Verse six, he went not fully after the Lord. He didn't fill his life with the worship of Yahweh. Pick up the record in verse seven of 1 Kings 11. 
Then did Solomon build an high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. Likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. As if serving these pagan deities was not enough, as if setting the worst example was not sufficient, he built altars for all sorts of these gods, especially the house for Chemosh, where in the hill that is before Jerusalem. That's a rather general statement. Jerusalem, of course, as we know, is a city that is set upon a hill. Jebus, as it was called, survived with the original inhabitants, the Jebusites, there until De David's day. Such was this place of fortification. The whole area is mountainous, as we know. Psalm 125, as the mountains are, are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth even forever. But could this place where this pagan temple was constructed have been in the same general area as that great, glorious, golden, shining temple built to Yahweh? I believe so. We won't turn there to Chronicles 3.1. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David, his father, which had once been the threshing floor of Ornan or Arona, the Jebusite. So the temple was built upon this raised up area, Moriah, what had previous be, previously been a place where, where wheat or, or some of the corn, some of the some other item was, was divided, was threshed. This area raised up where the wind carried away the chaff. And in that same general location, maybe the same area, there was an idol's temple constructed right by this place of holiness, of beauty and love. Again, I have to use this same word, brethren and sisters, how tragic this is. Nonetheless, two houses, both for worship, both in the same general area. Keep a marker in 1 Kings and come to Psalm 127, please. Notice, first of all, the, the heading to this psalm should never neglect the headings to the Psalms. They're part of the inspired record. And certainly in our, uh, our mutual improvement class at West, if, if a young brother chooses not to read the heading to the Psalm, he will be told very politely, please read it. Part of the record should never be neglected. Psalm 127, a Psalm, a song of degrees for or of Solomon. So, so would Solomon, who was inspired to pen these words, would he hearken to them? Verse one, except the Lord build the house, they labour in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh, but in vain. Yes, he laboured. Yes, the house was built, but he did so in vain. Why? Because he couldn't maintain his faithful stand. Come back once again, please, to, to 1 Kings. If we were to look at chapter 8, we would see once more that this is the dedication of the temple and Solomon's faithful prayer. After this, the father appeared to him for the second time. So 1 Kings 9, please. 1 Kings 9, 
and verse 3. We're told that the house was hallowed. 1 Kings 9 verse 3. The Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name there forever. And my eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. Astonishing language used of the father. How much this meant. Verse 4. If you walk before me as David walked, then I will bless you. The house will be established forever. Look at verse 6. But if ye shall at all turn away from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given him, and this house which I have hallowed for my name, will I cast out of my sight and Israel should become a proverb and a byword among all people. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly what happened. This prophecy was fulfilled in stunning detail. Notice that word byword, it's used, of course, in, in Deuteronomy 28. Similar language is used in the Hebrew and this perhaps won't mean anything to us, but it's it would be pronounced something like this. Shanina. And interestingly, even today, particularly in New York, Sheeny is a slang and derogatory expression for a Jew. A prophecy made by the father, which should have made Solomon redouble his efforts and make sure he would never fall. Sadly, it, it came true exactly as foretold turn back once again to 1 kings 11 our, our key chapter and to pick up the record in verse 9 we're told the lord was angry with solomon because his heart was turned from the lord god of israel which had appeared unto him twice and which had commanded him concerning this thing you know solomon it's not that you've not been warned you have been told commanded him concerning this thing that he should not serve the gods but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, for as much as this is done of thee, thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee and will give it to thy servants. Here is, brothers and sisters, the, the final demonstration, I think, of, of just how far Solomon had fallen and how unlike his own Father, David, he now was. Just, just think about it for a few moments. David is told through Nathan the parable of the, the poor man with the one ewe lamb. And, and initially he couldn't see it until he was told by that great prophet Nathan, probably with tears in his eyes, thou art the man. Literally, why can't you see this, David? Thou art the man. And ultimately he did. So Nathan comes to David and says to him, you took a woman that you shouldn't have taken. You committed iniquity with her. You blaspheme my names by your actions. At which point David says, I have sinned against Yahweh. No excuses, no blaming anybody else. Genesis 3, well, it was her fault. She tempted me. None of that, brethren and sisters. No, no. I have sinned. 
At which point Nathan says, your sins put away, that's it. The father's words to Solomon here in 1 Kings 11, pretty much the same. You tick women, you shouldn't have. You committed iniquity. You blaspheme my name by your actions. At which point Solomon is recorded as saying, not a word, nothing whatsoever. Now, maybe he did. Maybe he repented. Yes, there are many who believe that he did. And they will turn to Ecclesiastes and the words there, which seem to be those of an elderly man who acknowledges the sins of his youth. It's been said to me, think of all the scripture that Solomon was inspired to write. How could God use somebody who would later turn away? Well, I remain to be convinced simply because if Solomon repented, surely we would be told such a, a momentous example of contrition would, would be recorded. It is in the case of David. It is in the court case of Manasseh. But regarding Solomon, the word of God is silence. Secondly, surely the disasters that came upon him, the problems that he had to face, the adversaries that caused such distress late in his life would not have happened had he repented. But he didn't. I don't see the evidence for his repentance. Now, we won't look at the remainder of the chapter in any detail, brethren and sisters. If we did, we would see that there were various different adversaries that came upon Solomon. One of them is Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, you will know what phrase normally follows that expression. It's there again and again, isn't it? Which made Israel to sin. Fifteen uses in First and Second Kings. Why, why was it that Jeroboam was able to make Israel to sin? The answer is because Solomon failed in his duty to maintain the high standards of David. There should never have been two different kingdoms. Think about the disaster that was the kingdom of Israel, 10 tribes in the north, the kingdom of Judah, two tribes in the south. Think of the times they went to war. Think of the fallacy of Jeroboam's rule there in the north with his false prophets and false priests and, and golden calves drawing the people away. Think of some of the kings who came after him, the tragedy of their lives, Ahab, for example, amongst others. What a sadness it is. God is going to rend the kingdom. It's there, isn't it, in verse 11? And, and we know, of course, that the faithful prophets demonstrated that this would be the case by by rending the, the the garments of of Jeroboam the son of Nebat let's pick up the record in in verse 26 Jeroboam the son of Nebat and Ephrathite of Zereda Solomon's servant whose mother's name was Zeruah a widow woman even he lifted up his hand against the king and this is the cause that he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built Milo and repaired the breaches of the city of David, his father. And, and it, the record goes on, which we won't look at. Here is a, a classic example of a man who could only see the need to serve in one respect. Solomon built up the breaches of the city. He repaired them. Oh, yes, the wall now is immaculate. But he didn't build up the spiritual breaches, the gaping holes that were there in his life and the life of his people, which left the whole nation open to influences of the world. 
So once again, prophet Ahijah found Jeroboam, told him that he would be the king and, and rent his cloak, 10 pieces to him. Unlike the Lord Jesus, whose cloak was not rent. You see, one faithful king in the age to come. We will rule with him by grace, but one king over one nation of Israel and then ultimately over the whole of the world. Now, we don't know how, but Solomon learned about this. How did he respond? How did he respond? Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt, Egypt and to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Brethren and sisters, where have we seen this before? One man trying to kill another, divinely appointed to reign. The answer is, it's Saul and David all over again, isn't it? How far Solomon had fallen. How terrible that this could be said of him. And you know, if we look forward in scripture, where do we find this once more? It's Herod the Great and the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Herod the Great, his title, not mine. And please, please don't feel that this is said as a, as a character assassination of the man, Solomon. I say not such things, not out of judgment of him. I, I genuinely, genuinely hope that he did repent and turned back to the father in faith. I am absolutely certain that if he did so, and when we think of others who did repent, Manasseh being the classic example, hard to imagine any man being worse than King Manasseh. He filled Jerusalem with blood. But when in captivity, he turned back and was accepted. And so I'm absolutely positive that if, if Solomon repented at the end of his days, he, he would be accepted. What we have here, of course, is the account of the life of one great man who struggled towards the end of his days. And these things are recorded to quote 2 Timothy 3 for our reproof, for our correction, for our doctrine and for our instruction in righteousness. How then can we apply the lessons of the life of Solomon in our days? What, what traces of the things of this world still exist in our lives that we would be far better off without? Let's begin to bring our thoughts to a close. And we have to turn to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, our, our beloved master, that form the basis of our title today. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus had, had spoken to his listeners there upon the mount of not worrying about having sufficient food. You know, brethren and sisters, you, you are looking at the world's chief worrier. I know it's a sin and boy, does that worry me. But I, I really struggle to apply this as faithfully as I should. So I'm going to hold my hand up here and tell you that this really is one of my failings. Nonetheless, having, having said that God feeds the fowls of the air, he then talks about clothing. So verse 28 of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, 
which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven. Shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? All that glory, all that pomp, all that beauty, it's nothing. The grass of the field, the wild flowers are virtually no value in the sight of the world. They're more beautiful, says Jesus, because they are the work of Almighty God. And as he is able to make something truly beautiful, and you know, for reasons I won't go into, our house has, has it, it looked at times like a, like a florist the day before Valentine's Day just recently, for which we're extremely grateful. Flowers everywhere. Brethren and sisters, our Heavenly Father is able to make these beautiful things and he's able to make us truly beautiful by grace to give us bodies greater in beauty than anything that this world has ever seen. How appropriate here Jesus talks about not worrying about food and clothing. We're back in the wilderness wanderings, aren't we? where the food was divinely provided day by day and their clothing and their shoes never wore out. That's what God will do for us in the age to come by grace. Solomon's glory faded. You know, the beauty of this world always does. Ours, ours by grace will not. And so we read these words in Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments. And as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. Notice this. Bride and not brides. One great multitude of faithful believers gathered unto the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we are, the bride of Christ in waiting. What a promise and what glory awaits us in the age that is yet to dawn by grace. Let us then, brethren and sisters, take to heart the challenges and the warnings and the encouragements found here in the life of this great king. Let us Look in faith to that time when the greater than Solomon will be here, when a kingdom will be established that will make his look like nothing in comparison. And he will sit upon David's throne, judging righteously, when by grace, by grace, we will be with him, sharing his nature and sharing his glory forevermore. to suggest to you that one of the most common failings of all human beings perhaps including those within the household of faith the sons and daughters of God is is an ability to look at somebody else's problems with rose-tinted spectacles to think for example well I would never have fallen like that person did when he 
or she was presented with that particular opportunity or that temptation. Perhaps to think that somebody's burdens are light when in truth, we may not know what burdens they have to bear. You see, until we have encountered a specific situation, a particular challenge or temptation, we can never really know how we will respond. We all hope and pray that in time of trial, we will be strong enough to maintain our stand. But when we think of men like the Apostle Peter in the courtyard, we can see just how easy it is for those of the household of faith to fail at times. If you are anything like me, then sometimes you are strong and then able to withstand. Sometimes on another day, that same temptation causes me to fall. Well, here's a challenge then. How would you react if you were given 100 billion US dollars? That's around 72 billion pounds, not billion, but billion. So overnight, one of the richest people in the world, just so that you know, just behind this man, who's sixth on the list, Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook. You are a long, long way off. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you the richest of all time. You're a long way off this man, Elon Musk, with his 197 billion US dollars. Might even be more now since I compiled this talk. But you're not far away from Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, and certainly far, far richer than any other person in the UK. Now, here's the question. With all this money, with all this power, are you going to be strong enough not to be changed by it, to use it wisely? You see, the one we are going to consider today faced exactly this challenge. And as we know, it brought with it trials with which he struggled to cope. The man in question, David's beloved son, Solomon, the last king to reign over the whole nation of Israel until, of course, our beloved master who will reign not simply over Israel, but the whole world. Nonetheless, Solomon, as we know, was wiser than any other. His glory was unsurpassed, his wives more numerous, his empire more prosperous. In many ways, his early days, I would suggest to you, were as close a type you could ever wish to see of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the earth. Later, as we will see this afternoon, sadly, it was a pitiful sham. One which declined into idolatry and sinfulness, manifested by an unwillingness to accept the word of God and indeed an attempt to destroy his own rivals. So what we have before us today in the life of Solomon is a study which is nothing if not varied. We have the good and the bad. We have the faithful and the perverse. And in all of this, both the positive and the negative sections of scripture, there are lessons aplenty for you and me. Now, having said that his life varies from one extreme to, the, to another, you know, we see this pattern reflected, in fact, in the very incidents surrounding his birth. We won't turn to 1 Samuel 11 and the start of chapter 12, where we have David committing adultery with Bathsheba, arranging for Uriah to be killed, 
marrying his widow and, and then perhaps here's the greatest tragedy of all still being unable to see it this this man after God's own heart was blind to his own failings at least for a time demonstrated by the fact that when Nathan comes before him with this parable which on the outside we might feel is so astonishingly obvious of him and his work he still couldn't get it that's not me that's somebody else and that other person should be punished very severely indeed in David's eyes more severely than the law required nonetheless once David had been shown the enormity of his actions then unlike others when he was told of his shortcomings his descendants Asa and Joash for example this great man accepted the rebuke and he repented and although of course it was an impossibility we can be certain that if David could have turned back the clock he would have done so and he would have acted differently nonetheless he married Bathsheba now what comes next after all the sin after all the sadness the deceit the tragedy well the answer is something very positive the birth of a beloved son can we turn please to 2 Samuel 12 <clears throat> I want us to notice what happened and the names the meanings of the names here so 2 Samuel 12 verse 24 where we're told David comforted Bathsheba his wife and he went in unto her and lay with her and she bare him a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him and he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet again a further message from Nathan and he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord for the Lord's sake now the names here are very interesting Solomon first of all means peaceful there had been anything but peace in David's life in, in the days leading up to this and we won't consider the fact that Solomon doesn't appear even to be the firstborn of of David and Bathsheba there are lessons in that as well nonetheless a time of peace as it were in the birth of this child in fact the root word of the name Solomon is shalom and Solomon as a king would enjoy a time of great peace wouldn't he very little warfare certainly during his early days what about Jedediah beloved of Yah David as we know means loving and those two names Jedediah and David come from the same root Hebrew word can you see what we are being shown here brethren and sisters like father like son at least in the early part of his days how appropriate also when he was born that he should be renamed by almighty God and that that name implies love so the song of Solomon more than almost any other book emphasizes this godly trait David had been moved previously to act not by love but by lust but that had changed now and a beloved son was born to those two people David and Bathsheba and in due course he would write there in the Song of Solomon of many things but specifically that book emphasizes words to do with love doesn't it now we know very little of the childhood of Solomon he would have experienced of course the rebellion of Absalom because Absalom was older than he was 
fleeing from Jerusalem, waiting there in Mahanaim, waiting for the victory that God was going to achieve so that the faithful, the rightful king should be restored. He would have seen David's sin when numbering the people and the consequences of it. And we can only assume that throughout this time, he was guided faithfully, probably by his mother, who I'm certain was a great woman of faith, possibly Nathan the prophet who had been involved there in, in renaming him. And maybe men such as Hushai, who stood before David, giving him wise counsel. And though scripture says nothing about this, Solomon must have been shown the right ways from a young day, from his youngest days. He was trained in the way he should go. And not necessarily when he was old, but certainly when he was mature, when he came to reign over the kingdom. Yes, then absolutely he didn't depart from it. Nobody is born righteous. Those, those faithful attributes have to be impressed upon a young mind. And that would surely have happened in the life of this man. Well, let's move on to the time when the life of David drew to a close. 1 Kings 1, please. 1 Kings chapter 1. We know that Solomon was the father's choice to reign on the throne of all of Israel, the whole 12 tribes from Jerusalem, sitting upon David's throne. But he had competition. One of his half brothers, Adonijah, seized the throne. What do we know of Adonijah? <laughs> Brethren and sisters, number one, he was Absalom's brother, both naturally and spiritually, very, very much like his, his older sibling seizing the throne, sowing discord. And number two, he never, ever gave up. You see, even when he accepted, OK, Solomon, the kingdom's yours. Yes, I'll accept that. Right. OK, no problem at all. And he could have just faded into the background, but he didn't. He took steps to try to undermine in a subtle way the reign of Solomon. And at that point, the king says, right, that's it. Now you must be executed. And he was. Nonetheless, on this occasion, when these two men both have the claim to the throne, David took the initiative. Certain key men took Solomon at David's instruction. They anointed him and he was accepted by the nation. And I'm going to suggest to you that in these incidents here in 1 Kings 1, we have a type of the last days. It's a little bit convoluted. You may not necessarily agree with all of my conclusions, but bear with me, please do. The key players, first of all, in 1 Kings 1, of course, we have Solomon, the true chosen king. Renamed love, his name speaks of peace. The one anointed, chosen to sit upon David's throne, the type of the master. But he has a rival, Adonijah, so a false king, the usurper. He's not alone. You see, had it been just one man, Adonijah would have been laughed off. But it wasn't. He had religious support, Abiathar, who previously had been very faithful to David. He had military might and say what you will about Joab. Um, you know, he wasn't the most spiritual man who's ever walked the earth, but he was certainly capable as a leader of men, as a, as a, a military leader. And he was certainly loyal to David. For his own ends, I believe, but he was certainly loyal. So types and shadows, what do we have? Solomon represents the master. But there is another who wants the throne, 
and that's Adonijah. And he represents sin in whatever form, a false king reigning from Jerusalem. Now, we won't turn to the end of Daniel 11, but we, if we were to do so, we would see that the, the king of the north sweeps down. And when he does so, having taken, first of all, Egypt and then sweeping back up into the land, what does he do? We're told he's going to plant the tabernacle of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. It's the language of rulership, of, of kingship. I am now the king, not only of the north, but of the Middle East as well. And at that time, he will have the support of certain religious powers of this world. They will give him their backing. Roman Catholic Church supporting this power. Joab, I'm going to suggest, represents his military might because this will be an immense invasion, sweeping down into the Middle East, taking Israel, taking Jerusalem, two thirds cut off. Well, are there other types and shadows? Yes, there are. Come please to verse 38. Just getting ahead of myself there. I've given you a hint already. So 1 Kings 1, 38. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, and this is at David's instruction. And Benai the son of Jehoiada and the Kerethites and the Pelethites went down and caused Solomon to ride upon King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Now, Zadok and Nathan, prophet and priest, very, very Israelites. Are we thinking about faithful, natural Israel who would accept the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Very possibly so. Then we have Benaiah. What do we know about this man? He's, he's a very powerful and very effective killing machine. And rightly so. Mighty man of valour. Execute, executing the judgments of God. He had been supportive of David. He's now supportive of Solomon. He will very much support Solomon in the days that lie ahead. Maybe here at this point, he represents the angels who will come with the Lord Jesus. But there are others there as well. And they are termed the Kerethites and the Pelethites. Now, we won't turn back. We could do so and see that they had been with David. They are servants of him. We, we could look at Zephaniah too and see how some of these were Gentiles, in fact. Now, what do we know of these unusual names? Kerethites, Pelethites, what do they mean? Well, in the Hebrew, the Kerethites were executioners. They were life guardsmen. Many of David's men, of course, were executioners. You had to be if you were one of David's mighty men. Um, but these men specifically were taxed, tasked with this duty. They were, they were executioners when somebody had to be dealt with. Now, what about the Pelethites? The Hebrew means couriers or messengers. So whilst they would definitely have fought, if a message had to be taken, it was crucial. It had to go and it was quick. These were the men that were chosen. They could get a message to almost anybody and they would do it quickly. So we have warriors who destroy and we have those who spread the word, who take a message to others. Are we not thinking of the saints? Just look at these two passages. We won't turn to them, but, but Psalm 149, just a few words from the end of that lovely psalm. Let the saints execute vengeance upon the heathen. 
Of course, it's talking about the age to come. Bind their kings with chains, their nobles with fetters of iron. And if we read on, we would see that it says this honour hath all his saints. It's a privilege awaiting us. Not because we, we want to shed blood, because we have some gory desire to see people destroyed, but we want to purify the earth. And again, Revelation 14, we won't turn to. I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. And to every nation, kindred, tongue and people, that time will come, brethren and sisters, when we, by grace, like the Kerithites and the Pelethites, wage war for our master and then spread the word of God throughout the earth. The, the age lasting gospel. Now, maybe you feel I'm stretching it. Well, look at what comes next, because this is where the Titans become even more powerful. So verse 39. And Zadok, the priest, took an horn of oil out of the tabernacle and anointed Solomon and they blew the trumpets. And all the people said, God save the king, let the king live. And all the people came up after him. The people piped with pipes and rejoiced with great joy so that the earth rent with the sound of them. What, what was happening here? If, if not literal, symbolic, but, but certainly as it were, there's an earthquake going on, isn't there? The earth rent with the sound of them. Where is that same teaching used about Jerusalem? It's there in Zechariah 14. His feet shall stand in that day on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave, same word, rent in the midst of them. Cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. Whether we feel the types and the shadows fit here, there can be no denying that, that, that 1 Kings 2 presents before us two sons of David, one who grasped after the kingdom of his father, just like his older brother had grasped after it. And he failed, as had his older brother. And one who waited patiently, probably knowing what the other one was doing, but was granted his position as king when the time was right. Now, bearing that in mind, keep a marker in First Kings and come to Philippians 2, please. Philippians 2, well-known words for those of you who are used to seeing me and I see you at Bible school when we are privileged to do so well. We know these words well, don't we? So verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2, that we read that Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, like Adonijah, robbery, seizing the throne, who being in the form of God... I'm oh, sorry, verse seven, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Robbery. It wasn't plunder. He didn't he didn't grasp after what he could have had, the Lord Jesus. He waited in faith. He did what he had to do so that ultimately 
that which had been promised might be his. So clearly this speaks of the Lord Jesus. What about you and me, brethren and sisters? Are we not by grace kings and priests of the age to come? Will we not sit with him in his throne? Well, look at verse five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul was inspired to write that we should, must develop that Christ-like mind as he speaks of the patience of the Lord Jesus, waiting for the time when he will inherit all things. Very simply, he waited in faith and so must we. He was patient, so must we be. The problem is, brethren and sisters, we, we live in a world where patience is regarded as highly abnormal, a weakness perhaps. Everything, everything is instant. This was the start of it, you know, this was the first instant food. Instant noodles, okay, were first. After that, what did we get? Instant food, it doesn't look very, very appetizing there, but there we are, that's what the American army have. And now we have all sorts of different instant foods and drinks. And just, just for a record, you know, there are other makes available. And, and that one there, Kenko decaf, is my, my personal favourite. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with this. But if this attitude of desiring instant gratification is then manifested in other areas of our lives, then very soon we're going to turn from the truth. And I, I think back to my childhood and I see those of my peers who were baptised but didn't wait faithfully. The tragedy is within a year or so they had turned from it. You know, short termitis, it, it is no good. But people want everything straight away. Now, you know, I can tell you quite openly, I haven't moved house for 30 years now. Myself and Sister Jo, we're, we're very happy where we are. So the biggest purchase that I make is a car and I will go to a place like this. And personally, I, you know, I want a while to have a really good think about this. This is the biggest purchase that I'm going to make for many a year. I don't know whether you can see the orange sign there. Drive away in one hour. I don't want to drive away in an hour. <laughs> I want time, but they don't want to give me time. And that's the attitude of this world. Everybody wants everything instantly. Are we then waiting patiently for the promises of God to be fulfilled? Or has the hardness of the way, the time that has elapsed since we were baptised, 30, 40, 50 years or more, the influence of this world, has it ground us down? Well, let's move on to the time when the character of Solomon was tested once again, where the father promised him anything he wanted, gave him a choice. Well, as we know, the faithfulness of the man was manifested in what he requested. So first Kings three. Pick up the record in verse four, where we're told the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place there. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. And, you know, the start and the end of this section has Solomon offering sacrifices, whether he did or whether another offered for him, we cannot avoid. Clearly the types here, the Lord Jesus, the king priest, 
there in Zion. So verse five, in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and God said, ask what I shall give thee. Now, before we think about what he was offered and what he requested, what about the place? Where was he? He was there in Gibeon. Clearly a place where people went to offer sacrifices. And if we were to look at Joshua 21, we would see that it was a priestly city. It was in the area of land occupied by the tribe of Benjamin. So Saul's homeland, really. But nonetheless, this is where he went. There is a further reason why it's so appropriate that this was the place where Solomon was offered wisdom. Because in Joshua chapter 9, as the land is starting to be taken, the inhabitants of Gibeon, known, of course, as the Gibeonites, come to Joshua. And we're told in verse four, they did work willily. They went and made as if they'd been ambassadors, took old sacks upon their asses, wine bottles, old and rent, bound up, etc. We know what took place by acting as they did. They were able to secure their lives. And the word willily, very, very unusual English word. It means trickery or discretion. As we know, Joshua and the leaders didn't ask counsel of the father. They made the league. And in due course, these men, the Gibeonites, became servants of Israel, hewers of wood, drawers of water forever. Whatever we think of what they did, Gibeon was a place that spoke of wisdom. Of taking into account certain circumstances and responding to them, opportunities, dangers, and acting wisely. That's what the Gibeonites did. And in the same place, Solomon did the same thing. Look at verse 9. 1 Kings 3 verse 9, he says, Give thy servants, therefore, an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? Now, what does this request demonstrate, brethren and sisters? It demonstrates that he was already wise. You see, it takes a wise man to ask for more of it. Fools, and I hate to be too hard on people, are unable to see that they need to be wise. Why? Because they simply live for the day, gratifying the flesh, regardless of the consequences. Why did, why did Solomon ask what he did? Well, it's there in verses 7 and 8 and repeated in verse 9. Because he wanted to judge Israel faithfully. It wasn't all about Solomon. He didn't want to be wise so he could use it for his own ends to manipulate others. But rather that others might benefit. And again, doesn't this demonstrate what a wise man he already was? Only a man with such a mind could request a thing like this. Yet even before this blessing was offered and Solomon's choice had been made, there is an indication that this would be the case. Can you look please at First Chronicles 22? And we're moving back in time, although we're going forward in scripture, because here we're in the life of David. First Chronicles 22. David has called for Solomon 
Notice his words, verse 12, only the Lord give thee wisdom and understanding and give thee charge concerning Israel that thou mayest keep the law of the Lord thy God. Then if then shalt thou prosper, if thou takest heed to fulfill the statutes and judgments which the Lord commanded Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and of a good courage. That's early chapters of Joshua language. Dread not, fear not, nor be dismayed. God will give you wisdom, be strong to ask for it. And he did just that. And as long as he acted in line with that wisdom, he was blessed. Sadly, he didn't always do so. Nonetheless, notice the words of David. They're so powerful. Then you will prosper if thou takest heed to the statutes and judgments which the Lord charged Moses. It's there again in verse 14 of our chapter here, 1 Kings 3. If thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes, commandments, as David did, then I will lengthen thy days. What are we being shown here? That long life is entirely dependent upon obedience to God's word. And, you know, brethren and sisters, around 3000 years have passed since these words were spoken. And that principle is as true today as ever it was. Long life is dependent not only upon knowing the word and understanding the word, but applying the word, keeping ourselves separate from this world, which, of course, was Solomon's failing. You know, I used to say to my children when they were younger, we'd, we'd do the readings together. What's the, what's the two of the biggest words in the English language? It's then and if, sometimes followed by but. Think about it this way. Parent says to child, if you tidy your bedroom, then I will take you to the local restaurant for a wholesome and nourishing meal. Human promises are normally conditional and, you know, generally speaking, so indeed are the promises of our gracious Heavenly Father. I find nowhere in Scripture the promise that eternal life will be bestowed upon the unbelieving, the unrepentant the willfully ignorant. In fact, the opposite is true. If you serve me, says God, then I will bless you. That was the promise to Solomon. That's the promise to you and me today. We think of others who were, who were offered blessings, opportunities by the Father. Ask what you want. What about Ahaz? We won't turn there. Isaiah 7. Ask anything, Ahaz, a sign in the sky, a sign in the earth beneath. I will not tempt Yahweh, says Ahaz, not because he respected Yahweh, but because he refused to acknowledge his existence. Why should I ask for a sign from a God who I will not serve? And of course, his son, Hezekiah, was offered a sign and he asked for it and he was given it. The shadow went back on the sundial of Ahaz, a demonstration that in Ahaz's day, Israel had gone down. There's a further example of a type of the Lord Jesus Christ there in Psalm 2. Ask of me, says God, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. But again, Jesus would know that these things were entirely conditional. He would think back to the life of Solomon, the one who did ask of God and who was granted and who did rule 
certain Gentile areas round about Jerusalem, round about Israel. But Jesus would have seen how Solomon failed to remain true to the end, how he fell away sadly towards the end of his life because the flesh was not conquered. Now, what about you and me, brothers and sisters? Now, very few of us, I would imagine, have been offered the opportunity to become, shall we say, obscenely wealthy. I'm certain that none of us has been visited by our Heavenly Father in vision with Almighty God saying, I will, I will give you the opportunity to be as, as wise as you wish or, or to ask for anything. If we had, it would take wisdom, wouldn't it, for us to do what Solomon did here. You see, the attitude of some in the world round about us is not all, but some. Number one, all about self. And number two, all about the here and now. And we know that that is the case. Because of these ridiculous plethora of lotteries which exist today. One brother once called it a tax on the stupid. I know what he meant, brethren and sisters. I want to be rich and I want it now. Have you ever heard this one? I haven't. You know, it, it's hilarious and tragic. Oh, I think I'm going to buy a ticket this week. It's a rollover. <laughs> so what you are telling me is you don't want 24 million pounds, but you do want 48 million. That's that spurred you on, has it? 24 million wouldn't be worth having unless it was a rollover. You wouldn't buy the ticket. I'm sure there is some logic in there, brethren and sisters, but I'll be blown if I can see it. I want it all and I want it now. But the attitude of Solomon was firstly all about others. Make me wise, not for me, but so that I can judge others and help them. And secondly, it's all about the future. I want to guide Israel for the entirety of my reign. And though he may have struggled to apply that wisdom with which he was blessed later in life, there is still no escaping the fact that he asked for the right thing. He was blessed with it. And for a time it went well. He was also given riches and honour. And we'll see in our second talk how Solomon married many wives. Some of them had a decidedly negative effect upon his reign. A number of them were foreign princesses like Pharaoh's daughter. Think about it this way. Would he have been able to have married those wives had he not been made rich by God? Had his kingdom not been glorious? In other words, the wealth that he had provided the platform for his downfall. But the father gave him these things. Brethren and sisters, again, that there are lessons for us in these words. Lessons that we have to take to heart. You know, I might be blessed with a new job and one of the perks is a company car. It is a massive, gleaming, German, three litre beast of a thing it will cruise at 110 without even breaking sweat and one day i do just that crash the car and i'm in serious trouble i cannot blame the father for giving me the blessing that i have then abused you know he's going to chasten us through all sorts of circumstances some supposedly good, some apparently bad, in order to improve our characters in readiness for the time when our bodies will be changed. 
those who would dare to complain, well, if I hadn't been given that thing in the first place, I wouldn't have failed. Well, that's the attitude of the servant with the one talent, isn't it? He says to his Lord, well, it's all your fault anyway. Your fault for giving me the one. What do you expect? You're too hard. Now, our Heavenly Father has given us what he has given us as he gave Solomon this wealth. And we must manage it to the best of our abilities. The wisdom of Solomon, then, as we begin to bring our thoughts to a close, how was it used? Well, we, we could look at, at chapter four and see how he's wiser than, than all of the people in his day. He wrote 3,000 proverbs, 1,005 songs. He spoke of flora and fauna, so the, the cedar of Lebanon and the hyssop that springs out of the wall. And I will, I'll let you guess what wall that is, brethren and sisters. Of course it is. It is the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. Look at verse 16 of our chapter, please. 1 Kings 3, verse 16. Then came there two women that were harlots unto the king and stood before him. We, we won't look in any detail at the record. I'm sure that we know it well. Two different women appear before the king. Two women, one living child, one dead child. One of them had lain on her child during the night and swapped over the living and the dead with, with the other. It's such a sad and tragic occasion, but it's beautiful and enlightening in its own way. Nonetheless, the dispute arose as, as to why what had happened here. Why, why do you think that the king of the land was the one who came to hear their cause? Was it simply because others had been unable to help? Now, this is the only recorded occasion we have of the use of Solomon's wisdom. The only recorded occasion. Maybe others had tried and had failed. Maybe because it was the story of two children, one dead and one living. Born of women who had relations with men outside of marriage. Maybe, maybe it struck a chord for Solomon. It was very personal for him. Because that was the, the very tragic story of Bathsheba and her firstborn son. And then he is the living one. Nonetheless, what do we have here? Two women who have hardly anything in common. One was a liar. One told the truth. One had a dead child. One was alive. We're not told that they looked alike. We're not told that they sounded alike. We're not told they were of the same age or the same tribe. They had one major thing that bound them together, apart from the house where they lived. And that is, brethren and sisters, their sinfulness. They were harlots. Now, where else in scripture do we find two different women? We could look specifically at Ezekiel 16, Israel and Judah. They are termed harlots. Capital cities there, Samaria and Jerusalem. That's what you're like, says God. You've turned from me, both of you turned to, to spiritual harlotry. And although the type breaks down a little because neither of these women were harlots in the case of Sarah certainly no uh, but but Galatians 4 presents before us doesn't it Sarah and Hagar Isaac and Ishmael the allegory of the old and the new covenants and we could certainly look at Ephesians 5 and Revelation 17 and 18 where we have the ecclesia and the apostate church presented as two different women and indeed the connections get even more powerful when we see that both of these women have a claim on, on the Lord Jesus. 
maybe this is where it, it really hits home. You see, despite these women being so astonishingly unworthy, naturally speaking, they came before the greatest, richest, wisest, most powerful king, and they appealed for help. And we read in Hebrews 4, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may find obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need and they did come boldly before this throne of grace and the one who was truthful despite her sinfulness despite her failings she was helped in time of need she had in her bosom death it wasn't hers she wanted life and that was granted to her are these two women then symbols of you and me? None of us are worthy, but we can come to the Father and plead, plead his mercy and we can be heard. And ultimately we will bow before David's greatest son. And yes, we will have to answer as to how we have lived our lives. And if this is the case, and it is, well, brothers and sisters, we have to ask what fruits are there to show for all our years in the truth? Are we alive to God's word or are we like the woman with the dead child clamoring after something that's been lost? It's a harrowing symbol that these things are there for our learning. What we know is that this incident was spoken of far and wide. Look at verse 28. 1 Kings 3.28, and all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgments. This is, this is almost a, a symbol of Solomon's early reign. And how appropriate that it should be his judging of two different women. Very, very different. One truthful and one who was false. How appropriate that when he was inspired to write the words of the Proverbs. He should, pray, he should portray wisdom and folly in this way, represented by two different women. Time and again throughout that book, that's what we find. Either good or bad or both, there in the book of Proverbs. What a stark warning then for you and me from these these astonishing events, brethren and sisters, from this wisest of kings and those who came before him. Here are the lessons for you and me. We're, we're being challenged to follow the right king. You see, as in David's day, there were some who followed the usurper. Why? Because, because he was good looking, because he was new, he was exciting, because he taught the talk. And there are those today who will turn from their Lord and their king to the things of this world. We are being challenged to pray for the right things, to pray for others, that they might be blessed, that they might be helped, to pray that we might have an ability to help them, not for ourselves. We're being challenged, aren't we, to use our talents wisely. Anybody can dig a hole in the garden and stuff the talent there. It's easy to sit on your hands. It's easy to complain that somebody else hasn't done it right. Not so easy to roll up the sleeves and do it yourselves. And the challenge for you and me is to be fruitful. Solomon, when he was young, was able to do all of these things and more. Let us then take heart 
and the lessons of the early part of the reign of this great king and look to the time when the kingdom will come, which will make Solomon's reign, great and glorious though it was, pale into insignificance by comparison. My dear brothers and sisters, may that day of glory be very near. 